Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. And here's one more thing from me. So where do we go from here? After four chaotic and tumultuous years, President Biden has promised to put the chaos of the Trump administration behind him and return the country to normalcy. We know that while the dysfunction in Washington was amplified during Trump's tenure, it was there long before he arrived. Even so, it's clear that our political divide has gotten deeper and our democracy feels more frail and vulnerable than ever. Are we at a breaking point? Or will this be a time when the fever does really break? There are no obvious answers to these questions, and I wouldn't trust anyone who tells me they have them. What we need right now are fewer hot takes on Twitter and more thoughtful and nuanced conversations about the path forward. Thankfully, we can do that right here, right now on the show. We've counted on a few trusted voices over these last couple of years to help us understand our politics. My name is Adam Serwer. I'm a staff writer for The Atlantic. I'm Susan Glasser from The New Yorker magazine. Estelle Herndon, national politics reporter at The New York Times. I spoke with them about the future of American politics, what happens to Trump's grip on the Republican Party, and whether or not President Biden will be able to unite the factions within the Democratic Party. What is normal? Joe Biden campaigned last year on the idea that I'm going to make America America again. Uh, intuitively, we might all have a sense of what we think that means. Uh, you know, it, it, it actually reminds me, and this is a weird analogy maybe, but when, when I moved to Russia and covered Russia at the beginning of the Putin era, this was the goal and the, the, the desire articulated by everyday Russians after the tumult of the collapse of the Soviet Union and this first really awful decade of the 1990s after that. Uh, they wanted, they said over and over again, it was like the, the cliche, a normal, stable, civilized country, a normal country. And I think that this is a, a yearning, a political yearning that comes after a period of tumult and perceived chaos. And, you know, Donald Trump, Jeb Bush famously and correctly said, you know, is a chaos candidate who would become a chaos president. And this instability, this uncertainty about even basic functions of our government, of our democracy, as, of course, most powerfully crystallized by this, you know, sort of Trump or Damarung at the very end, uh, the, the bonfire of the Capitol, you know, this is what people want corrected for. And I think this is, of course, where Biden has started out strongest is on the optics. You know, you always want to take a job when the previous occupant, uh, you know, in some ways has left it a smoldering ruin. So he's he's been strong Biden on the optics. But, right, and there's a big but, dot, dot, dot. First of all, we don't have consensus on what normal is. Second of all, was Trump a temporary crisis or a symptom of a long-running one. Are we still in the crisis or is the crisis over? Uh, it seems to me that we're still in the crisis and we can talk about that. And then the third and final point I would make is that even if the Biden presidency is a return to the status quo anti-Donald, 
what is the status quo anti-Donald? It was pretty screwed up or we wouldn't have had Donald Trump to begin with. And actually it was a reality of extreme political polarization and partisan gridlock in Washington that looked and felt extremely dysfunctional against almost any metric except the metric of, say, the last year of the Trump presidency. Adam, is this a tipping point where we are going to look back and say, okay, this was actually a return to quote unquote normal the year 2021? Or are we going to look back and say, well, we should have realized that the last four years were actually the beginning of something? Um, I'm wondering if there's any point at which, as you've looked back and, and sort of seen how our country has handled other moments like this, if that can tell us anything about maybe where we're headed now. Well, I think if you look back to, say, 1868, you know, the, 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 the nation is on the verge of this democratic revolution where black men are getting the vote. And then by 1876, this call comes crashing down. So I think it's, it's particularly in our extremely fast news cycle, it is easy, it is like easy to not see the big picture or to understand that political shifts happen um, you know, in ways that are measured by years, not necessarily by weeks or months, although significant, obviously significant things can happen and change things in those shorter time horizons. Uh, but I think, you know, on the one hand, politics can end up being more volatile than we think it is. I, I don't know that back to normal in the pre-Trump sense is is necessarily in the offing. I think if the Biden administration is successful at containing the pandemic um, and reviving the economy, there is going to be a substantial sense of things getting back to normal in an individual, you know, we can get back to our lives sense. Mm -hmm. In terms of alleviating political polarization, I'm not sure that that's going to happen. It would be unwise to make predictions about the near-term future of politics, in part because, uh, you know, things are very volatile because of all the things that are likely going to change in the next 12 months with regards to the pandemic, with regards to people being able to go back to work, uh, you know, depending on how uh, robust the Democrats' relief package is and how many people benefit from it. Um, I would not assume that we are simply going to plot along on the same trajectory that we seem to be in during the Trump administration in the same way that people would probably not have predicted Donald Trump becoming president uh, in 2016, uh, you know, at the 2012 Obama inauguration. Right. Yeah. And I'm and I'm wondering, too, about that, Adam, but j just sort of this this plotting along uh, analogy here, if again, you know, one of the clear effects of the Trump era and this pandemic is it has exposed so much about who we are as a country that has been there all along, but, you know, we either chose not to see it or it can be covered up in some way. And it, it seems like we do that a lot in the country. We open these wounds and then we say, oh, God, we can't really deal with that. That's really uncomfortable. So let's just stick a Band-Aid on it until I don't want to get too gross here, but like it starts oozing out again. 
Yeah, I mean, look, people generally want to take the path of least resistance. Um, conflict is difficult, and our system has so many counter-majoritarian me- mechanisms that it's actually difficult to deal with big problems when the country is as polarized as it is at the moment along lines of class and education and race and everything else. Bestead, let's go to you and your area of expertise, at least for this last year, was covering the Democrats, the 2020 campaign. And you were there in the front row watching a party that many said, okay, well, it's a party dominated by liberals. Bernie Sanders is going to be the nominee or Elizabeth Warren, somebody in that track. And then they end up picking an old white centrist guy as their nominee. And Folks were saying, well, this marriage is going to work right now with Biden and the party because, well, Trump is the existential threat. And once Trump's gone, though, this marriage may hit some rocky moments. So um, do you think the the marriage can work now that Democrats control everything in, in Washington? I mean, that's the key question is just how this big tent kind of uh, uh, keeps itself together. Biden has certainly uh, made this a kind of key facet of his pitch. He talks about unity, but they're trying to fashion unity around public opinion, about doing things that are popular, not necessarily bipartisan unity between Democrats and Republicans, because they think that's kind of something that's unachievable. But there is still a huge diversity of ideological opinion and of just the way politics should work, even among Democrats. They need kind of uh, a universal belief in, in, in these policies to be able to pass something because their majority is so slim. But when you get to things like the filibuster, when you get to things like reconciliation, these kind of political process questions, there is not uniform beliefs among Democrats. And that's really going to be the central tenet to Biden's agenda. After COVID relief, things like Voting Rights Act, things like uh, police reform, things uh, that Biden has made, climate change, things that he has talked about, will require those type of things to happen for those kind of big agenda items to pass. And so it's going to be the core question of if he is viewed as someone who is simply about beating Donald Trump and removing him from office, and certainly that will be a part of his legacy, or if it's going to be part of that affirmative agenda setting which will require him kind of getting Democrats on board with some of these process questions that are critical to passing those bills. And it does seem as if, though, I mean, again, if we're talking about returning to normal, um, you know, back in the olden days, uh, and and I think, uh, Susan, you and I are, are probably the oldest one on this uh, roundtable, but like there were these Democrats, there were a lot more Joe Manchins on the Democratic side, you know, who came from conservative states, it seems like, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but there aren't the same sorts of deep divisions about some of the issues and ideologies that you might have seen in the 90s or even in the early Obama era when he was dealing with, you know, John Burrow in Louisiana or, you know, Ben Nelson in Nebraska. You know, Amy, I think you're right. The ideological sifting and sorting of the parties has included uh, essentially purging from from each party those who are too much outliers. You and I do both remember, uh, you know, in the 1980s and 1990s, it was still not entirely uncommon to have, for example, uh, an anti-abortion Democrat uh, in the U.S. Senate even. Uh, That just doesn't happen anymore. And, you know, it was very interesting project. My husband, Peter Baker, and I wrote 
a biography of Jim Baker, you know, who was sort of perhaps the premier Washington operative from the end of Watergate to the end of the Cold War. And the structural incentives of politics were so fundamentally different. It wasn't, Jim Baker happened to be also an exceptionally gifted deal maker and negotiator, right? He was sort of famous for making bipartisan deals on things like tax reform uh, and social security stuff that politicians talk about now, but seems completely out of reach, even if you had someone as skilled as him. Why? In part, it is the structural reasons for our politics having shifted. Uh, first of all, uh, divided government was reality. Then, uh, you know, you had uh, Reagan for two terms and George H.W. Bush, but Democrats were in control of the House for that entire time and for the right. Senate for half that time. You know, and not only that, but the two parties, as you pointed out, were were different in terms of their composition. It was completely standard practice for many states to elect a senator of a different party than that state went with in the presidential election. And now that's uh, there. You can count them, I believe, on one hand. You actually need one other thumb, but it's the same. Yeah, it's only six. So we at any moment we could get to one to one hand. And instead, it seems like and I, I, w- I want you to, to weigh in on this, especially because you have talked to so many voters within the Democratic coalition in this last year and a half about what their expectations for normal look like. And, um, a, a, you know, we saw at least among elected officials, the real tension point seemed to be on things like um, immigration and, uh, you know, border issues. Uh, and of course, there's these issues about, uh, quote unquote, defunding the police. Um, so talk to us about that, because it seems like that may be the place where the party cohesion gets really tested, uh, as opposed to what we're seeing right now, which is a debate over the size of a stimulus package and fighting the pandemic. I think that like when we talk about the next steps, it's not going to be over things like, uh, you know, you mentioned defunding the police. There's actually a joint. There's also belief across the Democratic Party on the Washington level that that's not something they really want to do. The question is, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which the House did pass, requires a 60 vote threshold in the Senate at this point, which it will not get likely. And what is Joe Biden and what is the Democratic Party willing to do to implement even the type of policing reforms that they say that they want? It's going to require the kind of institutionalists that we know of Joe Biden to be willing to push the Senate, to be willing to kind of uh, lobby and to go through kind of Trump-esque strong manning of the rules to be able to get his agenda passed and done. And so that's the kind of key question here is whether there is a willingness Uh, from Biden's point of view, to be able to do that? Or is this a precedent that says, hey, like I was I was bringing things back to normal and normal isn't changing the filibuster. Normal isn't pressuring uh, my own party. And I'm going to let the chips fall where they may on the agenda, because that's my top concern that I think that's going to be the kind of push or pull point that's inevitable in this administration. And what does it say to and this is a question for, for all of you, Estetta, I can start with you, but the kinds of people that Biden has put in his administration, a lot of them are throwbacks to the Clinton era, to the Obama era, to the sort of DLC uh, centrist times of the 90s. So does that give us a hint about how comfortable the administration itself is going to be, or in this case, maybe not be with really pushing the envelope? 
Yeah, I think I think that is one sign. I think that that is uh, I think the Biden administration does not want to fall into easy traps. And so when you have those appointments, you have people who leaned on experience, people who leaned mm-hmm. on kind of like previous uh, confirmable from a Senate level backgrounds. But I also think that that is for some people a sign of a political era that is gone. And so basically, will, will Joe Biden kind of be the one from the campaign. I mean, I think we saw multiple Joe Bidens in the campaign. There is one that thought the Republicans would turn back to normal, that what you needed to do to is remove Donald Trump and America will return to its natural state. There is another one who talked about kind of a robust progressive agenda, who talked about Democrats uh, having to be able to uh, start kind of stump out threats to democracy and that being his true goal, wanting to be a president in the mold of FDR. We just don't know, I think, at this point, which one of those versions of Joe Biden is going to win out. The appointments may point to one version and the rhetoric points to another. I think after the coronavirus package, we'll get a big hint at uh, which one we're going to get. <laughs> I know I keep reminding myself it's only been a month. Right. I mean, it feels like it's been two years since the election, but it's it's only been a month since Biden has been president and it's only been a couple of months since the election. Adam, now we see that Trump is as powerful as he ever was, it seems, that he is the party. It's not an ideology. It's not issue-based. It's literally, are you pro-Trump or are you one of the handful of Republicans willing to stand up and say, we need to define ourselves beyond Donald Trump. So what does this tell us then about where the Republican Party goes from here and how our politics can possibly work if it is fealty to a person rather than a battle over ideas that is is defining where we are? A lot of people try to argue that Trump is as, as like a figure is devoid of ideological content, mm-hmm. but I, I don't think that's correct. I think that okay. he is, uh, you know, the, the form of identity politics that he practices is extremely ideological. Um, and while it's not exclusively white, it is of a certain a particular kind of right wing identity politics that is usually associated with white Christianity, which reflects, you know, the demographic composition of the Republican Party. And the same is actually true of Joe Biden. I think it's important to look at Biden's strategy, political strategy. I mean, it's a form of de-escalation. when he's talking about Republicans being good people, Democrats are the Democratic Party is made up of, you know, the plurality of Democrats identify as liberals, but the majority of Democrats are moderates and conservatives. It is an ideologically heterodox party. The Republican Party is an ideologically conservative party. When you have a diverse ideological coalition, you cannot engage in a sort of you know, the kind of rhetoric of contempt that you see from, uh, Mm. you know, Republican, like even federal officials, like you can't do what like John Kennedy does and mock conservatives the way that he mocks liberals with their tote bags and their lattes or whatever. This is just that sort of cultural shorthand is not available to you because you have a coalition that has to unite like hipsters in Brooklyn with like church grandmas in South Carolina. Um, So you, you can't really do that sort of thing. And from Joe Biden's perspective, it is tactically smart for him to try to de-escalate those kinds of cultural tensions by reaching out in this uh, rhetorical way while still pursuing a policy agenda that is ambitious enough to solve 
the country's problems. The issue, of course, is that he has a you know he has a structural impediment, which is that the Senate cannot do anything. He cannot get anything passed uh, that Joe Biden and Kristen Sinema do not also want to pass. And it, the way that the Senate is currently structured, big legislative items. Um, you know, like voting rights, cannot make it through uh, the 60-vote filibuster threshold unless the Democrats are willing to alter uh, that institutional rule, which so far Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin are not willing to do. Um, But I think it's important to distinguish between Joe Biden being naive about bipartisanship in Washington and Joe Biden, you know, taking a a like tactical path towards attempting to depolarize or turn down the heat on the culture war that Trumpism basically thrives on, a sense of threat from these all-powerful liberals who are trying to impose their way of life on you. The best way for Joe Biden to defuse that assumption is to not seem like he's trying to do that at all. The uniqueness about Donald Trump seems to be his his shamelessness in the identity politics. And, um, you know, you would hear this over and over again from many people who voted for him, which was, I like that he says things that other politicians won't say. Can a traditional politician, we're watching them right now, Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, some of these other elected officials who are trying to sort of mold themselves in the image of Donald Trump, is that going to be believable? Can they actually do this and have it work? Or is there, we're going to see somebody come up who looks more like Donald Trump on the Republican side, right? Who comes from a very different background than, you know, the United States Senate or being a governor. Well, I think Trump's lingering influence in the party is evidence that he is a singular figure in terms of his ability to manipulate those political currents in the Republican Party. That doesn't mean that uh, there won't be a successor who can do it. But when you look at, you know, when you look at where Trumpism has been successful, it has not been particularly successful um, on an individual level when Trump is not the person wielding it. I mean, if you look at like That's Kelly right. Loeffler or if you look at Corey Stewart in Virginia, it, it really works well for Trump and it captures the imagination of the Republican base in a way almost no other politician can. But it's a lot more. But I'm not exactly sure what the mechanism is. You know, it's a kind of swagger that you can't actually teach. So yeah, it looks I'm like not, a caricature. That doesn't mean it can't be. That's some, that doesn't mean that someone won't figure out a way to do it someday. But I think the lingering influence of Donald Trump, if there was someone who could do it the way he could do it, he wouldn't have as much influence in the party as he mm. does right now. Well, Susan and Adam and Estad, thank you for taking this time and, and walking through all of this. Uh, you guys are doing awesome work. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Appreciate it. Have a good day. Adam Sewer is a staff writer at The Atlantic covering politics. Susan Glasser is a staff writer for The New Yorker. And Ested Herndon is a national political reporter for The New York Times. One of the most rewarding aspects of hosting this weekly show has been hearing from so many of you, our listeners. You've taken the time to be part of the show by sharing your opinions and weighing in on our listener questions. So this week, we decided to turn the tables and open up our lines to let you ask the questions of me. All right, Jay, fire away. Hi, this is Andrew in Kalamazoo, Michigan. How can we make the legislative branch legislate once more? I hate to say it this way, but how do we make Congress great again? (laughs) 
Hey, Andrew. Great question. I think at its very core, what we have is a misaligned incentive structure. At its core, what we know is that individual members of Congress see themselves more as individuals than part of a team. But a lot of this comes back to leadership. How can the leadership in Congress help individual members appreciate and understand that the most important thing for them to do is to deliver back to their constituents, which then comes back to us, right? We have to hold these folks accountable. Whether you sit in a red or a blue or a purple district, your voice really does matter. Where it really has incredible weight is in a primary. The kind of red or blue member you get also matters. So taking the time to show up in a primary to let the candidates know that you're just not going to accept somebody who goes to Washington to just put on a show, but you want them to actually bring something back to their constituents and put you first. Andrew wasn't the only one wondering about Congress actually getting things done. This is Leon from Brooklyn, New York. My question is, what are the odds of an immigration bill being passed through Congress underneath this new administration. Hey, Leon. Well, we know that President Bush and President Obama both tried and failed to get comprehensive immigration reform passed. President Obama probably came the closest. It made it through the United States Senate on a bipartisan vote. I think those days, unfortunately, though, are past, and that most of the work that's going to get done on immigration is going to happen through the executive branch, through executive orders. Now, I think that perhaps the House will be able to take something up and push it through, but getting something through the Senate, a 50-50 Senate, and one where immigration has become such a third rail for Republican candidates makes that really unlikely. Hi, this is Sam Calesta calling from Albuquerque, New Mexico. My question for Amy and the rest of the Takeaway crew is if the unprecedented level of political donations we saw in 2020 is here to stay. And is this a good thing that we should want in our democracy? Hey, Sam, that's a great question. Money's always been a part of politics. And for as long as I can remember, there have been attempts to try to limit how and how much money goes to candidates pretty unsuccessfully. Look, I think on the one hand, we know that you're right. There is so much money pouring into the system much of it from people who are millionaires and billionaires and putting super PACs together. But we also know that thanks to the internet, we have more people engaged in political donations who are just regular folks who are giving five and $10 and are making a huge difference. In the olden days, the only way a candidate really was going to be able to be successful is they had to get past these gatekeepers, the people who knew the donors or had the lists of folks to call to get those big checks. Now, If you have a good enough following, a good enough message, you connect, well, you can raise that money yourself with very low overhead and turn it directly into campaigning. All right, let's take another one. Will there be a Trump party? And if so, how will that affect American politics and American society? Well, I think it's pretty fair to say that we do have a Trump party. The Republican Party right now is one that is dominated not so much by an ideology or by an issue, but by a person, and that's Donald Trump and and fealty to, to Donald Trump. The question going forward is, 
just how long will his influence over the party last? We know that he's going to want to weigh in on these 2022 elections. We expect he will be endorsing or taking out his vengeance (laughs) against certain Republican candidates. But at some point, you wonder just how effective he can be without the bully pulpit of the presidency and without his favorite form of communication, which is Twitter. We also know that Joe Biden is the president. And at some point, the attention to Donald Trump is going to fade. And the focus will be both for American voters and the Republican Party on how they feel Joe Biden is doing in his job and whether there's someone on the Republican side who could do better. And so I think most parties, and especially when we think about elections, so much of it is a reaction to the person that's currently in office as opposed to a reaction to or reflection on the person who was there before that. This is Doug in Portland, Oregon. We are so divided The sides are so entrenched, and the rhetoric is so vitriolic, and social media continually pushes us away from each other and any mutual understanding or compromise. How will we ever grow towards something that is more conversational, understanding, and functional? Will I ever have a chance to respectfully engage my conservative counterparts and be respectfully listened to as well? It's hard to imagine these days. You're right, Doug. It does seem hard to imagine. But I feel as if there is a way to do this. And it really starts with us. I know that maybe that sounds a little bit cheesy, but it's true. You sound like somebody who wants to engage respectfully and thoughtfully. So continue to do that. And you set an example for others to follow. Don't get caught up in what you're seeing on social media. Don't fan the flames. Step away. You know, I'm one of those folks that I... Definitely check in on Twitter, probably too much. But when I see the conversation veer into the personal and the vindictive, I just step out or better yet, tell people to stop. They'll listen. They're following right now because it seems like it's the only thing to do. But if they see that there is a way to do it differently, they will. And I, what I'm hoping Again, this is really, to me, the, the, the big question for our time is where our leaders will do the leading. We are in an era where trust in our institutions is as low as it's ever been, and trust in leaders is as low as it's ever been. But that doesn't mean we don't need them. Part of the reason I think our trust has fallen is that they have failed to do the thing they were supposed to do, which is help to put some boundaries and set some standards It's possible, and we see those people in our lives all the time. Maybe it's a a teacher or a coach, someone in your community who's doing that hard work. Lift them up, pick them up. Show that this is the way to go. Spend more time talking to them and about them, and less time engaging with people who just want to pick fights. Thanks to everyone for taking the time to share your insights, your questions with me. I really, really enjoyed that. And if you didn't get your question in, don't worry, it's not too late. You can always find me on Twitter. I'm at Amy E. Walter. One of the big takeaways from 2016 was to constantly question our assumptions about voting behavior. Democratic dominance in the so-called blue wall states in the Midwest was no longer assured, 
but neither was the GOP hold on southern and western states like Arizona, Georgia, and Texas. Even so, the assumptions about demographics, specifically the role that race has on voting preferences, continued. For years, the conventional wisdom suggested that the higher the turnout, the better for Democrats. In 2020, Biden did win 7 million more votes than Donald Trump, but he carried the Electoral College by just over 40,000 votes. And while record turnout helped Democrats win in places like Georgia, it also helped Republicans retain their hold of vulnerable Senate seats in places like Iowa and North Carolina. This week, I sat down with Cheryl Laird, Assistant Professor of Government and Legal Studies at Bowdoin College, Julia Azari, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at Marquette University, and Mark Hugo Lopez, Director of Global Migration and Democracy Research at Pew Research Center. Cheryl speaks first. Yeah, I think sometimes people need to think about things like split ticket voting more, right? That you do have individuals who will decide to engage in voting at the top of the ticket for one party and maybe down ballot voting for somebody else. You know, I live in a state where, you know, being an independent is something that is very touted here. So it is possible for somebody to decide to be in one place with their partisanship on one for one person and somewhere else with somebody else. Additionally, you could have people who are participating and maybe deciding that they're only going to vote for particular candidates and not vote for other individuals. And also that the Republican Party does have some appeal to individuals. I think there's been an assumption, like you've just said, that those people who are not participating are people that wouldn't necessarily find the appeals of the Republican Party as something that would drive them out or motivate them to turn out. But there's evidence to say that actually there is some something to think about there, that there is some appeals and some of the rhetoric um, on particular policies and positions can be something that even for for non-voters, um, now that they started to, those that have started to participate that we see in 2020, maybe found some of those peels to be something that drew them to turn out. So we really kind of have to reframe it too, because part of the issue here is, as well as our observational data, is that a lot of times we tend to focus on likely voters and people who vote, but we don't really spend a ton of time understanding non-voters, right? Because they often aren't in those samples and polls that we collect. And so I think we now have to really engage with the idea of, well, what are people really thinking in those spaces? Are they split ticketing, split ticket voting? Are they deciding not to support certain individuals? Or are they turning out for things that seem to speak to them? Um, and maybe it's not in line with our previous assumptions. Julia, what about you? I mean, as somebody who who is, you know, deeply immersed in especially the historical data about our politics and voting behavior, what assumptions were sort of upended in this last era, and and how does that guide you in thinking about what to expect for the next four years? Thank you for the, the history setup. That's actually a good framework, I think, to think about the two things that came to mind for me. The first one is the elasticity of, of the vote or the kind of ability mm -hmm. of the electorate to swing in general in response to candidates and events. So this is actually maybe takes us in a little bit different direction than than what we were talking about with the, the mobilization topic. And this is the kind of level of surprise among commentators and political scientists about first about Trump's victory in 2016, in which partisan loyalty really just drove um, how people voted. And it didn't seem to be responsive to things that a lot of a lot of commentators and even, you know, kind of people like the the Bush family thought were wrong with the Trump candidacy. Um, a lot of establishment Republicans. And that just, you know, 2020 was just that times a million where mm. 
I think the the pandemic and the economic collapse did not benefit the Trump administration and probably, you know, I think it likely sort of put them over the edge of losing the election. But nevertheless, you know, they got a lot of votes. And if we put that in historical context, that just isn't hasn't always really been been true. If you think about like think about other economic periods of economic decline and and struggles um the 1980 election huge punishment for the incumbent jimmy carter wins you know just just about 40 percent of the vote similar kind of uh situation in 1932 during the great depression for herbert hoover and you could argue that those are different kinds of moments and comparisons always have always have some caveats but i think it's fair to say 2020 was is was not a high point yeah, I mean, <laughs> we had two once in a lifetime events, right? Like a, a right. pandemic and the the economic damage done in a very short amount of time. It's like nothing we'd ever seen before. Exactly. And yet, and you're right. Was, he loses, but he still, you know, gets 46, 47 percent of the vote. Yeah, I, I mean, and I would also add the unrest over the summer and the kind of the evident feeling among a lot of Americans that the status quo in terms of, of race and policing was also not tenable. And the, the Trump administration, mm-hmm. I think, is also deeply linked to that. And, you know, nevertheless, we see during this unprecedented moment, um, a fairly still, you know, fairly strong base showing for um, for the incumbent. Mark Hugo Lopez, what about you? Was there something as you came into this election or maybe you know again go back these last few years and and use it to sort of how much does that guide you in in going forward when you are thinking about some of the trends that are out there um and the assumptions that you're making about what they tell us about uh voting behavior and voting participation in the future so one of the uh, trends that I've been following is, of course, how uh, Latino voters are viewed. And Latino voters have often been seen as a strongly Democratic group or a group that will support mm-hmm. Democratic candidates in growing shares and, of course, in growing numbers because of the rising um, uh, number of, uh, of Latinos who are eligible to vote. So there's a lot of potential in the, in the Latino vote. Part of that story has been that also Latinos, because many are foreign born, um, about a third, for example, are foreign born, um, uh, are going to be um, uh, driven by immigration policy. But one of the things that's happened over the last uh, almost a decade and a half and, uh, that I've been following this is that um, immigration hasn't always been the deciding factor for Latinos. And the reason why I bring that up is because the uh, the comments that Donald Trump made, starting with his announcement of his candidacy and building a border wall with Mexico and uh, uh, calling Mexican immigrants uh, all kinds of things, such as criminals and rapists and so forth, that many uh, analysts thought that that's going to drive Latinos towards Democrats. And then we see 2016's results. Uh, it looks like the Latino... Uh, Latino voters uh, supported Trump at least at about a 25% uh, share in the 2016 election, although there's some debate about that. And then in uh, 2020, even more so after four years of, of efforts to reduce immigration, to change immigration policy, uh, and many other things, many thought that the that Latino voters would, would uh run away from Donald Trump, that he get less support this, in going into this election. But as uh, people started to do more looks into this, it seemed that there was a strong level of support for Donald Trump among some groups of Latinos, which led to one of the things that I think is an interesting assumption people make, that all Latino voters are 
are similar, that Latinos are a block. Uh, when right. I think this last election has shown that maybe Latinos uh, are a diverse group of voters who have diverse points of view and different candidates uh, might be able to appeal to different segments of the Latino vote in different ways. Um, I would also point out, though, that you know Donald Trump's um, uh, performance in this last election, maybe about 28 to 30 percent support among Latino voters nationally, um, isn't out of line with what we've seen in other uh, with Latino voters in other elections and support for Republican candidates. Uh, Ronald Reagan won around 35% of the Latino vote in 84. And when you take a look at uh, uh, George Bush in 2004, he won 40% uh, of Latino voters support in that year, at least. Yeah. Um, Mark, get, get us to that question about, um, you know, the diversity of the Latino population, which I think, I hope at least, the media has been better about trying not to clump it in, but doesn't always do such a perfect job of uh, recognizing that that is a monolithic, you know, th this idea that there's a monolithic Latino vote is is obviously a false one. But I was talking with someone the other day who said to me, the narrative about Latino voters in 2020 was driven as much by uh, the time zones as anything else. So because Florida and Texas, um, you know, they're one is in central, one is in the eastern time zone, because their results come back earlier than, uh, at least for those of us on the east coast, than Arizona and Nevada, that the story of the Latino vote was driven by the fact that Trump did significantly better, especially in South Florida and the Rio Grande Valley, um, as opposed to the conversation starting with, like, had maybe Arizona gone first and Nevada gone second, and then we had Texas and uh, Florida, that the story would have been, look how important Latino vote was to Biden's victory in those two Western states. So can you talk to us a little bit about what do we know right now about who turned out, where they turned out, and what that tells us about Latino vote going forward? Well, first, as you noted, the Latino uh, electorate is very diverse. The Latino population is very diverse, with people tracing the roots to all parts of uh, Latin America, for example. Interestingly, um, uh, while it is uh, uh, the case that Florida, what happens in Florida, shapes the narrative about the election, not just Latino uh, voters, but the election generally, because it's early on, it's a battleground state, and it's so important in so many ways, um, it is true that the conversation about Latino voters oftentimes focuses on those in South Florida. Yet, you know, what's interesting about that is, is that Florida is perhaps the most diverse of Latino states because it's got just about every group represented there. And as a result, it is, uh, in terms of origins at least, one of the more diverse, if not the most diverse states um, in the country. By contrast, California is dominated by Mexican-Americans. But in Florida, uh, Cubans may be almost half of the population, but uh, it's a very diverse population with people from South America, like Venezuelans and Colombians. You have Dominicans. You also even have Mexican, uh, a Mexican population that's the third largest in the state. But it is also interesting and telling that when we talk about Latino voters, the focus every year is on Florida and what mm -hmm. happens in Florida. Again, that's partly because it's a battleground state. So how Latino voters go has some implications for how the national election might go because of Florida's general importance. Um, but it is still the case that Latinos in this election supported uh, Joe Biden at a, at a level that looks to be about two thirds at least support uh, for Joe Biden in this election among Latino voters. That's not much 
different than what we've seen from, say, Hillary Clinton in 2016. And while it's below what we saw for Obama in 2008 and 2012, it's not it's on par. His support is on par with what we see for most Democratic presidential candidates over the last 30 years. Well, Cheryl, let's talk about um, black voters. And you've done so much work on this uh, group of voters and especially on their, as you said, steadfast uh, commitment to Democrats. And yet, you know, a lot of the conversation we are having in 2020 was about just how steadfast that will continue to be. Trump going specifically after African-American men. Um, There was talk that uh, younger voters still feeling as if the Democratic Party doesn't really sort of get their generation and this moment, and maybe they sit it out. So what have you learned about uh, over the last four or five years about black voters and voter behavior and what it can tell us going forward? The black voting behavior that we observe with the Democratic partisanship is one that is very strategic. It is coming out of a particular history, one in which an understanding of how one is able to lift up the group interests the best within politics and best being what has been deemed by the group um, has been a path through the Democratic Party. And a lot of that stems from the civil rights legislation that has come out of the Democratic Party in support of African-Americans, as well as opportunities to enter into elected office, um, even access to the vote fully um, through the VRA. Uh, And so that has served as one of the major parts of why we see the partisanship the way that it is. And historically, it has come out of a long history of a collective politic that has been engaged engaged in by African-Americans. So, you know, we can look at these modern moments, but I think understanding the historical span of time for why the behavior is the way it is, is, is an important part of that, because it isn't something that has novelly come up today, but something that has been a large part of what we've seen African-Americans do to try to leverage their power as a minority group in a majority-based system. I think key to understanding then why I would say that for younger Black individuals continuing to be pretty much in line with um, this Democratic Party norm has to do a lot with the socialization of this norm and that that is something that occurs within these racially homogeneous settings um, and that those racial homogeneous settings are due in large part due to things like residential segregation. So as long as we see African-Americans continue to primarily be in communities and spaces where they're touch points and contact with individuals are other African-Americans, that will be something that helps to maintain the norm over time. So even as we see more African-Americans vote in support of of Donald Trump, what we saw in the 2020 election, the numbers that I saw coming out of it didn't seem inconsistent with any of the numbers that we had seen before when you look at the percentages. And Julia, I want to get to this sort of broader question about demographics and sort of what what we, what it could mean going forward. And that's this. I remember, I'm sure you do too, uh, in the Obama era, there was this um, belief or conventional wisdom that demographics were destiny. And Mark sort of alluded to this too, that as the country became uh, less and less white as the uh, as we had more and more younger Latinos and we have Asian Americans um, aging into the voting pool, that it was going to be harder and harder for Republicans to win. And then 2016 came along and showed us that actually a Republican candidate can still win 
by just driving white turnout. And we had in 2020, yes, it was a much bigger margin for the Democrat and the popular vote, but switched 90,000 votes in three states in Nebraska's second district. And you have the first president in American history elected twice without winning the popular vote. So we could be locked in this kind of place for a while now where you have a popular vote loser winning the electoral college once again. And what does this do to our politics? And what does this do to our democracy if we have election after election where those two don't meet? The electoral college looks incredibly different from the popular vote. This is a great question. And I think my answer is going to be a little bit of a downer. Um, (laughs) I think that there is you know, there's a decent chance of entering into situations with a bunch of these institutions, the Electoral College, the, the, the power and strength of the Supreme Court, where people see them as kind of fundamentally out of step with public opinion. I think the Senate also is, you know, is, is an example of this, where we have a, a very 50-50 Senate, despite not really having a, a 50-50 country. Um, and, but I don't know that the, that the coalition to change them is going to be big enough to actually make to make fundamental changes. So I think you end up in a situation where you have a lot of people who are who are dissatisfied, uh, but not enough, not enough to create change. And that to me seems like a really kind of fundamentally unstable situation, exactly the kind of unstable situation that I think when the Constitution was designed, um, the framers were trying to think about how to avoid that sort of instability. If I can say a little bit about about the Democrats and the kind of larger challenge of the Democratic coalition, which is that once these elections are done, they're also expected to govern. And I think that this the Democratic majority has a really challenging problem on its hands, which is that it has a kind of broadly popular agenda that is the, the big ideas are more popular than the Republican stances on the big ideas. So the public leans in the democratic direction on, on environmental issues, on immigration, on economic issues. That's not that unusual. Um, but right now I think there's a, there's a lot of pressure to produce lasting change and serious change on some of those issues. At the same time, the democratic coalition itself is not unified on what to do. And again, this isn't new, right? What the, the devil is always in the details. It's always in the producing a policy that has winners and losers. But I think the Democrats are in a very specific position in which there's pressure to do something about these issues. They have members of their coalition that really want to see kind of fundamental structural change in these areas that want to see a party really tacked to the left. And they have and they have a segment that's more like the the Biden-Harris segment that is more oriented toward the status quo, democratic, liberal to be sure, but but not necessarily a kind of pro-change um, force within within the coalition. I think the Biden administration is listening to those other voices, but I think it's it's also clear that this this other segment of the party exists, um, and they're doing this also in this incredibly competitive, deeply polarized, very angry and toxic political environment. And so the way in which the larger 
partisan environment and then the intra-party divisions plays out is I think really creates an important needle to thread for Democrats. And I honestly have more questions and answers going forward about what that looks like. Yeah, I think I think we can all feel, or at least I'll speak my speak for myself that uh, very humbled about <laughs> predicting uh, what's going to happen um, based on what we have been through for these last four years, but specifically what we've been through. Uh, since the beginning of 2020. Um, Julia, Cheryl, Mark, I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Julia Azari is Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at Marquette University. Mark Hugo Lopez, Director of Global Migration and Democracy Research at Pew Research Center. And Cheryl Laird, Assistant Professor of Government and Legal Studies at Bowdoin College. So one last thing for me today. I've had the great privilege and honor to host this show every week for the last two and a half years. And I'm so very grateful for those who made this possible, including those at WNYC, PRX, and of course, the amazing team of professionals who work so hard on making sure we get the best possible product on the air every single week. Now, over the last few years, political reporting has become more about generating outrage than seeking to explain, covering the loudest and most controversial voices while ignoring those who are doing the work at keeping our democracy alive. The goal of this show was to be the opposite of all of this. We wanted to help people understand that politics wasn't meant to be distilled into 140 characters, that curiosity is one of our most valuable and underappreciated assets doesn't mean I want politics to be neat and clean. It's messy, and that's okay. The more voices in the mix mean that we're hearing from people whose stories were once left out of our political narratives. But messy doesn't have to mean dysfunctional. What we need more than anything in this moment is leadership. Instead of throwing up their hands and saying, well, it's what the people want, or it's what the market demands, leaders are there to set boundaries and are willing to be unpopular for doing so. I also wanted every show to convey a sense of humility and empathy, to accept that you don't always have the answers or that sometimes the people you may not always agree with sometimes have some pretty good ideas. Covering this moment in American politics has been an amazing experience. Thank you for taking this crazy journey with me. And while I won't be at this microphone every week, I will be popping on every now and then to talk with Tanzina about politics and Washington. You can catch me every Monday on the PBS NewsHour or read my weekly column at cookpolitical.com. And I'll leave you with this. Our politics is only as broken as we allow it to be. Show up, speak up, listen more, shout less. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob is our associate producer. Polly Rungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. Sham Sundra has been our board op. Vince Fairchild is our board op and broadcast engineer. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. Thanks so much for being with us over the years. This has been Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway, signing off one last time. We'll see you sometime soon. Until then, take care. Be well.